Hi, it's Heidi Heitkamp, and welcome back to The Hot Dish. I've got two really great guests today. First up, I'm joined by Anthony Daniels. He is Alabama's House Minority Leader and a One Country Project board member. Anthony is really an amazing young leader who I think you're going to hear more about on the national stage as time goes on. But today we're talking about some really stunning events in the state of Alabama. And that is a rare win for voting rights. So, Anthony, tell me what's going on. Tell me about how you've been involved in this struggle and where do you see this headed in the Alabama legislature? Well, first of all, thank you, Heidi, for, for having me. It's good to see you again. I would say that, you know, I've been involved in this process since the very beginning. There were con- conversations about a lawsuit back in 2017 uh, by the Holder Group. And so they've been involved in this process since 2017. Before we go on, can you explain who that group is? Yes, the Holder Group is a organization uh, led by former Attorney General Eric Holder, where they focus a lot of their attention on redistricting, helping state legislatures and also congressional redistricting, filing lawsuits where there are opportunities for more representation for communities of color and where gerrymandering happens and, and, and other things. So they've been a phenomenal partner and pushing back on partisan gerrymandering. And so they, they, they focus their attention on that. They work with other legal teams to, to make certain that they're able to push back on things that violate any parts of the voting rights. Explain a little bit what your argument was in terms of how Alabama had uh, redistricted their congressional districts over a period of time and why that was wrong. Absolutely. You know, a state that has 27 percent African-American population with only 14 percent of representation, meaning that out of the seven congressional districts of the state that's 27 percent African-American, you only have one representative out of seven. And so what the courts deem is that Alabama has an opportunity, can successfully redraw, I mean, draw a second majority African-American district where African-Americans will have the opportunity to elect their candidate of choice. But the other side, the Republicans failed to accomplish this after the court provided guidance. Well, when it went to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court agreed with the actions of the uh, Northern District Court. And so we are right now uh, at the redrawing process. The lives that were drawn, the Republicans drew, only had about 40 percent African-American. We were like, you know, the courts gave you guidance of drawing a district that's majority African-American or quite close. And quite close is not 40 percent. And with the historic nature of, you know, in Alabama, we've seen this play over and over again. But it always gets to the courts and the courts always really help the folks and people in Alabama uh, get an opportunity that they should have quite naturally had before. But it always takes the courts intervening. And, and we're excited about the opportunity. And two of these judges are Trump appointed. And so we're very excited about the ruling. We know that the other side is going to appeal. But what we're looking at is the basis of the case is not R.D. You know, it's not about Republican or Democrat. It is about African-Americans having the ability to elect their candidate of choice. And the state of Alabama uh, focused more on defiance instead of compliance. And so that's how where we are right now. They're going to appeal uh, from what I'm hearing to the Supreme Court. And what we're finding is that they really don't have a real grounds for appeal. But we're sitting back and we're looking. But I would tell you the work that was done by my colleagues in the Alabama legislature, House members, they follow the playbook. They focus the, their attention on making the legal arguments instead of making emotional arguments 
on the House floor when we were debating the uh, redistricting during the special session. And so they executed beautifully. And we focus uh, a lot of our attention on the, the merits of the case and what the courts and the courts desire. And the other side just totally ignored it. And so that's how we got to this point. And so it was a very interesting day in court. And it was very, very rewarding. And, and I'm really excited about the ruling and look forward to the next point in this process. You know, the old expression, how many federal discord judges does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just one, because the world revolves around them. And let me tell you, federal judges do not like it when they tell people this is what you do and people become defiant and ignore the rule of law. It's really important that people understand these are not judges that were handpicked by Barack Obama or handpicked by, you know, Bill Clinton. These are judges who are applying the law who were, in fact, appointed by Donald Trump. And yet we see this really, honestly, Anthony, all over the country where courts have basically given a blueprint and, you know, conservative judges given a blueprint on making sure that voting rights are recognized through that portioning these districts and the arrogance of state legislatures, majority member legislators just basically say, we don't have to listen to the courts. Hopefully the Holder team will get sanctions as this moves forward as Alabama continues to ignore the mandate of the court. Absolutely. I, I think that the attorney general, you know, when you are from a party and talk about being conservative and, and talk about being fiscally conservative, well, we wasted millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars fighting a case and defying the the, uh, the court. And so we're focusing on trying to get a decision on something and continue to appeal it and get the same result. And so it's unfortunate it is something that we have to look at down the road. And I think that it puts these other states in a great position. You know, we have the blueprint. Just follow the blueprint that we've laid out for you, even from the legislative standpoint. But one of the things, Senator Heitkamp, I do think is important for folks across the country to understand about the South is that don't win the case and lose the race. And what I mean by that is making investments, making and playing the long game is okay. It's for moments like this that you realize the the importance of playing the long game. Because at the end of the day, if there's no infrastructure on the ground and you win these cases and you're you're given a district that's favorable to Democrat and you don't have the infrastructure built and the cadence built on the ground, it can result in a loss. And so let's, let's be excited for the ruling, but let's not just win the case. We got to win the race as well. What a great expression. And, you know, the other thing that it will do is it will maybe force the majority party to pay more attention to the needs of African-American citizens. I mean, quit assuming that this is partisan. Start assuming that these are voters who have been disenfranchised, their interests aren't represented, and now you have a chance to have that conversation in this district. But like you said, Democrats don't take it for granted that it's going to go your way either. Elections matter and discussions during elections matter. And so, Anthony, it's an exciting time. I have a question I think uh, many of our listeners would be curious. You're the minority leader in the Alabama House of Representatives. I think a lot of people believe that Alabama is one of the most conservative states of the union. I, I think I could tell you that North Dakota could give you a run for their money. North Dakota gave Donald Trump the third highest percentage of any state in the union behind West Virginia and Wyoming. 
And Alabama is a changing state. And change comes in a level of difficulty for people who have been in power so long in one state. Can you just talk about the the demographic changes in Alabama and the changes in terms of urban-rural and how we need to do a better job in the Democratic Party reaching out to those rural, particularly African-American voters who really haven't paid a lot of attention, feel like no one's paid attention. And I know this has been a passion for you. You've been a leader in this effort nationally. If we can just talk a little bit about what you're doing on that score. Well, thank you, Heidi. I think that it's it's, it's the work of your vision, uh, One Country Project, that are really one of the only entities in this country that's focusing on places that were considered flower of a country for the rest of our party. And so it's, you know, thank, thankful for, for folks like you that really understand the importance of engaging and reaching out to voters in rural communities. One of the things that we're working and we've been working on tremendously, and I'll add this, we're one of the states, few states in the country that did not lose a seat that doesn't have a party infrastructure in the United States of America in the last election. And it's because of partners like OCP and others that we've been able to do that. And focusing on building infrastructure and engaging voters of color in a lot of these rural communities. Oftentimes you have 20, 30 percent people of color in these rural communities and there's no little to no engagement. And so what we've been focusing on engaging voters of color in some in some of these rural communities, because, you know, instead of using it as flower country, you may be 60, 40. Right now it may be 80, 20. But if you put some work in and engaging and turning those those infrequent voters out in those communities, it could be 60-40. And so in 60-40 in rural places across the state of Alabama, what that does is it gives a person running statewide or in a congressional district a fighting chance at winning. And Alabama's demographics are changing. North Alabama voted 32% for Obama back in 2012. Madison County voted 46% for Joe Biden. And so you've seen a shift in demographics. A lot of the jobs, the high-tech industry and other aspects of North Alabama have been bringing in more communities, uh, more individuals that are educated, working a lot, a number of jobs that we have on the ground. The economic strategy has to run parallel to the, uh, the political strategy, because as you bring in more high-tech jobs and more jobs that require terminal degrees, that's the demographics that's more likely to vote Democrat. And looking at places like Birmingham and Montgomery that are solidly Democrat, they're not even maximized the potential there. There was 101,000 African-Americans that didn't vote, doesn't vote in every election, just in Jefferson County, where Birmingham sits. But Birmingham has been able to win countywide, Jefferson County, countywide, election after election, as well as Montgomery. You can do the same thing in Mobile. So our, we're, we're, not, we're under investing in these communities across the state of Alabama. But I'll tell you, we've been building the cadence to, to appeal to working class people. They're getting excited about it. We're talking about ways to put more money in their pockets, ways to help them with their prescription drug costs, ways to help uh, look at expanding Medicaid so that they can have uh, access to health care, ways to eliminate the taxes on overtime pay, eliminating the grocery tax. This is the cadence that we're, we're communicating this cadence because these are democratic ideals, democratic ideals that the average person didn't hear about. And so with more investment and more opportunity, and building the infrastructure across the state of Alabama, we will be able to take advantage of moments like this where the courts have to iterate. Well, it's interesting because 
10 years ago, I said the two states that you want to watch are Georgia and Arizona. And people just looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, well, take a look at the demographics, take a look at kind of the youth. Those two states were getting younger. They were getting more high tech. They were getting more suburban. And I think that the next two states I would watch if I were actually probably three and people will say I'm crazy is Louisiana, Mississippi and Alabama. And if we're going to be successful in getting a diversity of representation in these states, we have got to be talking the way you're talking, Anthony, talking about how do we reduce their food costs? How do we make sure that they have access to rural health care, which you know and I know was a huge part of your outreach in your African-American communities where hospitals were being shut down in record numbers. You'd have to drive hundreds of miles to deliver a baby. This is happening all over rural America. And we've got a good story to tell, but you can't just say, I'm going to go for the low-hanging fruit without having a conversation in communities where you can pick up a few votes and it can make a difference and we'll get better governance as a result of it. And so that's why these redistricting fights are so absolutely critical. Anthony, if somebody wants to kind of better understand what you guys are doing in Alabama, where would you send them to get more information? What I would do is the Alabama Democratic Caucus, the Alabama Democratic Victory Fund. Alabama Democratic Victory Fund is the political arm to the Democratic Caucus. And so we're we, every day, we're working hard every day on trying to get more people elected. Right now, there's a couple of special elections coming up where we have an opportunity to flip a seat where a representative uh, ended up not living in the district that he's representing and have uh, been forced to resign. And so now that there's going to be a special election, it gives us an opportunity to potentially pick up a seat. And so we need all hands on deck with the Alabama Democratic Victory Fund in order to make this a reality and make those the appropriate investments. Well, one thing I know for sure, if, if you get more help you're going to use that help and you're going to do amazing things with it, Anthony. And I just want everybody out there who has been listening to Anthony Daniels, he is the minority leader in the Alabama legislature. I want you to know that in 10 years, this is a guy who's going to be standing on the national stage, either in the Congress, in the Senate, maybe even in the State House, which I think would be exactly where you belong, you and your lovely family. And so, Anthony, thank you so much. I'm just so proud to call you a colleague on our efforts at One Country Project. You have brought a Southern perspective to the work that we do. You know, my perspective is obviously in the Midwest and Western, but we think at One Country, we need to live up to our moniker. We are One Country, and you have embodied that effort. Thanks so much, Anthony, for joining me. Keep up the good fight. We look forward to listening to you in the future. Well, thank you, Adi. And, and it's because of your leadership that we're even able to get the acknowledgement in the South and in rural communities across the state of Alabama and, and, and across the, the entire nation. And so because of your, your leadership and what you provided, the platform that you provided for folks like me that would have never, my voice would never be heard if it had not been for you. And so I just appreciate your friendship and guidance. Let me correct something. Your talent far exceeds my leadership. You're going to do just (laughs) fine on your own. You didn't need me. Anyone who met you knew you're the real deal, Anthony. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. There is nothing more devastating than losing a child. 
and the opioid epidemic has taken far too many of our children. Angela Kennecke is a former news anchor with the CBS affiliate in KELO-TV in South Dakota, and she is my guest today to talk about her advocacy work since this tragedy struck her own family. Angela went from covering the opioid epidemic crisis as a reporter to experiencing this devastation firsthand. We're here to talk about a really personal story, and I can't tell you how grateful we are, not just for the purpose of this podcast, but all the mothers who are experiencing this kind of tragedy for you lending your voice when I'm sure there were many times, Angela, when you simply wanted to pull the covers up over your head and never speak to another person. And so I want to talk about first, um, maybe your, uh, your daughter's journey and how she got involved in opioids, and then talk a little bit about how you came to the realization that your life work had to be preventing this, or at least exposing this problem and preventing this from happening to another family. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And it has been quite the journey of losing my daughter, Emily, who was just 21 when she died just a little more than five years ago. I could never have imagined this kind of thing happening in my family. Emily had all of the gifts and all of the privileges, you know, of being middle class. And she was a gifted student. She was a gifted athlete. She was a super talented artist. She had all the advantages. She went to every camp for every interest she wanted to explore. She was able to have a college fund and all of these things. And none of that seemed to matter once substance use disorder took hold of her. And it started at a really young age. And it really was because of the peers that she sought out. It was one particular boyfriend. She had had a what we consider a good group of friends. And we all know that even good kids can make bad decisions sometimes. But she had a really great group of friends. I wasn't worried. I thought things were going great. And she met a boy and fell in love. And he was a drug dealer. And from there, it really went downhill. We had a lot of behavioral issues with her in high school. I did get her and she got an art scholarship to go to college. She started in college, but ended up dropping out. And you could see that things were changing with her. You could see the use progressing. She hid a lot of it from me and from her family. And I think there were some underlying mental health issues. So now the question always is, is it the chicken or the egg? Did the drug use, especially at a young age, you know, before your brain is fully developed, did that cause some anxiety and depression and things like that? Or does she already have those things and was she self-medicating? It's, it's really hard to know. I mean, I had taken her to so many counselors when this behavior started in high school, when I still had some control. I had even called in law enforcement at one point. So, you know, I tried every tool in the toolbox I could think of. And here I am a journalist doing research and reporting on things like the opioid crisis. And I should know, I should know what to do, right? But as a parent, it is the most frustrating and helpless situation you could ever be put in. And now I have my own podcast, it's called Grieving Out Loud. And I interview parents all the time, parents whose children became addicted or even just took one pill and died from fentanyl. And parents whose children completed suicide after suffering from substance use disorder. So we all, kind of feel the same way. And I speak for so many parents. There are so many of us now. When I first spoke out, 
when you talked about that, it was it was really scary. But getting back to Emily, we knew something was wrong, and I knew about marijuana and Xanax. That's what I knew about. And I knew she'd gone to see a psychiatrist during all of this, and she had been prescribed clonopin. So I knew about a prescription drug, and that's what I knew about. Well, we were three days away from holding an intervention when Emily died, and she died of fentanyl poisoning. She was using heroin. We didn't know that. We knew something was terribly wrong. We had gotten her a bed in a treatment center. We were gonna hold this intervention. We were really hopeful, but we were too late. And I, I was doing stories at the time on overdoses and Good Samaritan laws. And it was something I felt that I should have been able to prevent, yet I couldn't. And it was really devastating, heartbreaking. It still is every day. But in terms of your question about speaking out, I had this platform and I knew that I could do it. So therefore I should do it. I had asked so many parents over the years to talk to me uh, after losing children, after so many things, I'd asked people to talk to me after the most devastating moments of their lives and victims of crime and things like that. And I just thought, how can I run and hide from this? And I've always said from the beginning, if me speaking out and now me doing all of this work that Emily's Hope does, saves one life, prevents one parent from going through something like this, it will all have been worth it. Can you talk a little bit about your journey trying to seek counselors and help and the work that you're doing now to provide at least some direction to families who are in your position and just trying desperately to save their children? Yes. Yeah, so one thing you should know, I can throw some statistics out at you, too. Obviously, South Dakota is a rural state and the city I live in, Sioux Falls. We had 302 emergency room visits for overdose in 2022. I mean, that's a lot for a community of 250,000. And the first half of 2023, we've lost seven people to overdose. And I know from speaking all across the country, I go tell Emily's story now. I bring it to schools and I've had a lot of rural schools reach out to me, a lot of superintendents in small towns like Presho, South Dakota, Kimball, South Dakota, say to me, the problem is here. In fact, in one of these small towns where I spoke to students, they had had three overdoses that month among students who had been saved by Narcan in these little tiny towns. And then, of course, you have the Native American reservations. And we know, you know, meth was, is a huge issue there. And now fentanyl has become a huge issue on reservations. And it seemed like such an insurmountable problem. You know, as a parent, you try all these things, but someone like my daughter who was very strong-willed, and you have to understand that disease is an addiction of the brain. And it tricks the brain into thinking that this substance is the most important thing, more important than anything else. Getting this substance, maintaining this substance is more important than anything else. And that's why we see like grown adults who have a substance use disorder stop caring for their children because the substance becomes so important. And so you really are battling an uphill battle, but we definitely need more resources. One of the things that we're trying to do at Emily's Hope, and we just are part of a larger group who was awarded a federal grant to work on overdoses in rural areas, is we need to educate every physician out there on prescribing buprenorphine or medically assisted treatment for opioids use disorder because it works. And there's such a stigma among doctors, among medical health professionals, when it comes to 
prescribing a drug to treat another drug, right? But w- but the studies show, the statistics show that it works. It's just like a diabetic taking a drug for diabetes or someone with heart disease. But we have all of these preconceived ideas and biases about it. Medically assisted treatment we know works. And we know that helping people detox in that way prevents suicides and things like that. Because when people are detoxing, they're at the lowest they've ever been. And that suicide ideation can go along with opioid use disorder as well. When so many families have been affected, the National Farmers Union and Farm Bureau do surveys of rural America. How are people feeling? They found that 74% of farmers have been directly impacted by opioid abuse. Think about that. And so whatever we're doing right now is not working. That statistic that you just said doesn't surprise me at all, because if you think about farmers and the injuries that they suffer on the job, and you think about the prevalence of opioid prescriptions and how Oxycontin and all these drugs and the drug makers were pushing it to doctors and the doctors were prescribing it like candy. I mean, we have the largest opioid prescription in the world in the United States. So it is a real issue and we have to start seeing it as a mental health and disease of the brain issue and not as a character flaw or a moral failing. You know, you hear, why can't they just stop? We also heard a lot of, especially when I first went public and even sometimes today I'll hear, well, you were just a bad parent. You know, that's why this happened to you. And I think that kind of rhetoric and those kinds of prejudices and biases that just simply aren't true do so much to stop us from solving the problem. I want to go back to something you said early on when you were talking about Emily and the chicken and the egg. So much of what we see in addiction frequently is a kind of self-medication for challenges that people are having otherwise. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that so many rural communities have in accessing mental health treatment? So I want to clarify something here. When we talk about 110,000 people dying in 2022 to overdose, about 80% of those were fentanyl poisoning. The CDC calls everything overdose. You have some parents that get really upset when you say their child died from overdose. No, it was fentanyl poisoning. They didn't know they were getting fentanyl, which is true. But there are the other 20% of the 110,000 people died from meth overdoses around the rise and multiple drugs in someone's system, those kinds of things. So you have so many people dying every year and so much fentanyl out there. But I, we have a support group for everybody who has a loved one who they've lost. And we get together and we met with this grief specialist, this grief expert who's got his PhD in thanatology. And he was telling us that almost all addictions are based in grief and trauma, especially grief. So people that are going through addiction, they probably don't start off thinking I'm self-medicating. But there's a reason why They want a feeling of elation or a high. They want to escape reality, right? Because it's all hard for all of us, but some people are really, really struggling with loss and grief, childhood traumas, things like that. And the problem you have in rural areas is that there just aren't enough resources. The state never has enough money. There aren't, you know, there aren't enough beds. There aren't enough mental health professionals working in rural areas. And we have to find ways to fund that, to attract people to rural areas, and to also take away the stigma, not only for getting help for addiction, but also for getting help for mental illness. And I think that is starting to happen. I think it's happening much more with the younger generation. I see that with Generation Z, you know, that they're talking about this much more than people our age are. 
I don't think that we are exaggerating. I think sometimes people who haven't had experience with this or haven't sat in a room full of parents who have tried desperately to save the lives of their children and are now raising their grandchildren because their child is either in prison or has died from poisoning. And I think there's just so much judgment about these families if you don't have experience. And that judgment prevents investment. And so I want to just say, I think your work is so critical. And people who, you know, man, she looks like me. Her life experience is no different, but yet she's suffering this loss. I just want to say how important it is that you speak up, but how do you encourage other parents that you've worked through their grief with? How do you encourage them to be part of this dialogue? So not everybody can speak up and probably not everybody should. Some people are very uncomfortable with being public, but I do ask almost every parent I encounter or I meet who's gone through something like this, if they're willing to talk about it. And many, many are. And I think as it happens to more people, I also have seen many more people wanting to come on my podcast to talk about it. I talk to parents all the time who've lost someone. You know, in some cases, Heidi, they had a teenager who bought a pill off Snapchat because we're very comfortable in this society taking pills. I mean, this wasn't even an addiction issue. They just were experimenting and they found them dead in their room the next morning. And that's becoming more common. I mean, overdoses among teenagers have doubled in three years. So it's everybody's concern. And I always say it's going to take a bunch of angry moms. There are actually more dads talking about it now, too. But I always say it's going to take a bunch of angry moms, just like I know you remember back to the AIDS crisis. And I always liken it to that. So during the AIDS crisis, people were writing fake obituaries. They were afraid to say what their loved one died from. And it really took a bunch of angry mothers, you know, going to Washington, protesting. Remember the AIDS quilt? More conversation, more dialogue about it to change the rhetoric around it. And that's what I say about this, about this overdose epidemic. It's just gonna take a bunch of angry parents joining forces to make a difference and to end this horrible situation that we're in in this country. I wanna ask, because if you're listening to this, what can I do? What do you want the government to do? What do you want public health people to do? I believe once someone is addicted especially if they're addicted to fentanyl, a very powerful, powerful synthetic opioid. It's a tough road. We know that relapse is part of recovery. However, today relapse can be deadly. And we know that people have a hard time, you know, and they need to get the medically assisted treatment, but even then they can struggle. So at Emily's Hope, we believe that prevention is key. And I am feel so strongly about this. And I have been so driven by this one idea that prevention is key. And if only we can teach children at a very young age how to protect their bodies and brains, what substances do to the brain, how they react in the brain and the body, that we can prevent a great number of these deaths. We just have to lessen the demand for it. So Emily's Hope has developed a K-5 through curriculum, and we are teaching kids in age-appropriate ways the difference between medication and candy in kindergarten. Who is a trusted adult? I mean, we don't want kids taking anything from anybody because we know it can be deadly. And we piloted our our curriculum in nine schools, including schools on an Indian reservation here in South Dakota, rural schools, uh, more populated schools. And now we've unveiled that to 50 schools in five states this year. And we're super excited about that. We think that can make a huge difference. 
Angela, I just have to tell you, you are a marvel. And I know Emily would be so proud of you that you have taken this tragedy in your family and you have brought such awareness, certainly in our region, but nationally to an issue that I think gets talked a lot about without a lot of understanding of the dynamics behind it. And I really want to applaud the sophistication of what you're doing, but also the courage that you have to get up every morning and fight the good fight to prevent this from ever happening to another human being. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate those kind words. I guess I just see it as helping others helps me. It is a place for me to put my grief and to try to make a difference. I find a lot of purpose in it, and I'm just going to keep doing it as long as we keep having this issue, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. That was Angela Kanicki, the founder of Emily's Hope and the host of a podcast, Grieving Out Loud. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Hot Dish. If you enjoyed our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And to support the important work that One Country Project is doing to elevate the needs of rural America in Washington, please visit onecountryproject.com forward slash give. Thanks so much. We'll see you in two weeks. Oh,